Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. I mean, you can stay standing if you want, just might get old. Um, I, uh, like Doug said, we're in Mark 7, and I want to hop in right away this morning, so feel free to uh, open your Bible or bust out a device if you've got one. Um, I hope Doug didn't oversell <laughs> where we're headed this morning. I usually like to under-promise and then just deliver right there. Um, but uh, hopefully uh, there are some cool things we can pick out from Mark 7 this morning. I want to give you guys a little bit of an overview of where we're headed, and then we'll do that. Uh, Mark 7, 1 to 23, um, we've been seeing that in, in prior to this, that Jesus has come, and he's doing some incredible things. He's doing miracles, and he's got these crazy, insightful teachings, and his teachings are very revolutionary, very counter-cultural, very counter some of the religious institutions in place at his time. Um, and so he's got some crazy teachings, and we see in a few different times uh, that some opponents start showing up and opposing Jesus' teachings. And so we're going to see that in uh, Mark 7, 1 to 23. That's kind of the premise for that. This passage is very contextually specific. So this is a, a conversation, a, a story that happens uh, in a very specific context. So I want to spend the first maybe half or a little bit of our time unpacking that, and then after that... I want to maybe share with you kind of where this takes me, uh, from my heart where this takes me, something that I'm kind of passionate about and see what we can kind of uh, glean from some of the actions and what's going on in this text. And I, I tell you that because that's the second half because when we're done the text, I don't want you to like, you know, you start powering down and you're like, oh, we're almost out of here. I don't want to like, you know, pull one, a fast one on you. We've still got a little bit of time after the text. So anyways, why don't you guys hop into Mark 7 with me. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And here Mark gives us some commentary. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So I want to observe, we're going to move through the text fairly quickly, but I want to make a couple observations. The first one, it says that these, uh, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, have come from Jerusalem to speak to Jesus. And then we read that, it's easy to think that maybe they were just kind of outside, they saw Jesus go by, they heard him saying some stuff, and they showed up and started opposing him. Scholars believe that Jesus is probably in Galilee at this point. And so if you don't you know your ancient Middle Eastern geography, I'll help you out with that. It's about 110, 120 kilometers uh, from Jerusalem where these guys came from. That's a long ways, especially like a couple thousand years ago for these guys to travel. So what's believed is going on here, same kind of thing happens in Mark 3, is that some of these uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law, kind of some of the higher-ups in the Jewish religion, may actually put together like a delegation of some these guys and, and sent them to oppose Jesus. This is a long journey to take 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. I mean, this is like, this is like me saying, hey, I want to take a road trip to like Newfoundland. Like this is, uh, you know, most people are like, no, why would I want to go there? But this is... Um, 
this is, this is a long journey. So they, they've, they've, they're on a mission. And so they come to oppose Jesus, and they take him head on with this idea of unwashed hands. They say, your disciples' hands are defiled. What a weird thing. I don't know if any of you have ever had someone say your hands are defiled. Like, I mean, I get this picture of when I was a child coming out from playing in the yard and hands full of dirt with worms and be like, mom, look how many worms I caught, you know? And my mom's saying, wash thine defiled hands, you know? Um, but apparently this is a pretty insulting thing back then. So new Bible insult. If you're like mad at someone, just tell them their hands are defiled. And that's apparently pretty good. So Mark talks about this being uh, holding to the tradition of the elders. And we're going to look at what that means as we carry on. But let's see what Jesus's opponents say to him. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? In the Old Testament, that's, that's the Bible that these guys would have at this time, their scripture, their law. There, there wasn't tons on like, there wasn't anything about ceremonially washing your hands or your dishes. There was a bit of stuff around some ceremonial cleansing. It was mostly the priests who were doing work in the temple had some things. So what's going on here is these Pharisees, usually they, uh, they confront Jesus on scriptural things. They say, well, scripture teaches this, what about this, and usually biblical stuff. They're on pretty thin ice here, because they've actually brought what's called the tradition of the elders. What's happened in the ancient Jewish culture here is that they have the law, and they have scripture from God, they have what they know about God, but over time they have these elders who are adding in some teachings and kind of taking from their culture and their context and their preferences and their ideas, and they're making these ideas up called the tradition of the elders. And the Jews would hold to this very closely. I mean, you followed the tradition of the elders. This was passed down. Maybe you've grown up for a long time in church and you have things that you're like at my church. We, these are the traditions of the elders. You know, we do this, you know. And so um, th- this is kind of what's going on here. And it's a big deal to these guys. And what the ceremonial hand washing is, I've read up on it a bit. It's actually kind of interesting. They would have like special water. Um, so like stone jars uh, with this like sacred water. They wouldn't just wash it with like any old water. So like at my house, I drink tap water all the time, but I go to some people's house and they've got like almost a whole room with like a water system that like sends the water around the world and back and like reverse osmosis and stuff like that. I mean, this is, this is the water that the Pharisees were using. You know, on my dishwasher, I just hit start, but there are all those other buttons like sani rinse. No one knows what those means, but these guys, they're serious about their cleansing process. So they have special water in stone jars and they would measure at least, their measurement, this, I'm not making this up, was at least an eggshell and a half of water, and they would start pouring it at their fingertips and go up to their wrists, and then they would use a fist to kind of uh, like cleanse their hand, and then they would again pour water from the wrist down to the fingertips. The interesting thing about this hand washing technique is it, it, it wouldn't actually really get your hands clean. Like, I mean, if your hands were dirty, it wouldn't be sufficient. It was just a ceremony to keep yourself from being defiled. And they had this around their dishes and stuff too. They'd actually even developed a specific prayers that you would pray when you did that. One of the ancient prayers they pray when they did is they say, blessed be thou, uh, blessed be thou, O Lord, uh, king of the universe, who has sanctified us by the laws and commanded us to wash the hands. So it's interesting. In their tradition, they say this is a command from God, but it's actually a tradition that they've just picked up in their church over time. So they're telling Jesus, your guys are not following the tradition of the elders. What they've done is they've created their own law. They've created their own gospel. They've created their own rules. These aren't from scripture. This is something they've made up. Their their culture has developed this, 
And now they're confronting Jesus about this. Not, not a good idea. This is not a good way to make Jesus happy. So Jesus is triggered, and he punches back at them pretty hard. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So Jesus quotes the scripture in Isaiah from Isaiah 29. And I'll give you a little bit of a picture of what's happening in Isaiah 29. So Isaiah is this prophetic book, I believe, written in kind of a couple different eras. But in Isaiah 29, uh, it's before the nation of Judah is going to be exiled by the nation of Babylon. And what's going on is they've been unfaithful to God, so they're going to be pun- God's going to basically stop protecting them. Babylon's going to come in. It's going to be really bad for their nation. And, and the charge here, it's called a judgment oracle. The charge here in Isaiah 29 that Jesus is quoting is, is the prophet is saying, you guys are following human rules. You say you love God, but your lives don't show it. Your actions don't match up with the God that you profess to believe in. We've got the law, we've got the prophets, we've got scripture, you're not doing this. And Jesus brings this to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and he says, you guys talk the talk, kind of. You, you, you say you're devout followers of God, but your actions are based on your own ideas. Your own, what they've done is they've taken their own ideas of what makes sense, their own rules, their own traditions, and they've developed what I would call a cultural Christianity. They've, they've developed something that in their context, they're like, this is how we think we should follow God rather than just this. This isn't enough. We've made our own rules. And it's easy to read that and be like, man, what a bunch of morons. But I think that we so often do that. And, and that's hopefully we're, a little bit of where we'll arrive later is how we've developed our own kind of cultural Christianity. And, and we need to return to the simplicity of what the God of the universe teaches, teaches us. Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says, you honor me with your lips, but your actions don't show it. One of the best terminologies I've ever heard for this in my life, I love it, is, is a Christian atheist. And what that means is someone who says they believe God, they show up to church, they do something, but their actions would tell you, their thoughts, the way they live their life would tell you that there is no God. Their mouth say, says there's a God, their actions say there is no God. That's what a hypocrite is, and, and this is the charge. Jesus says, you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he unpacks that a little bit by getting really specific. He gets up in their grill. He continues, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said in the law, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. So that's in the law of God. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God. Mark explains that. Thank you, Mark. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So what, would, what happens inevitably when you create your own theological ideas outside of Scripture, outside of who God has said he is, outside of what the Bible describes as Christian, when you start to create your own cultural or traditional ideas that make sense to you, eventually you get contradictions. Eventually you have things that are incompatible between the... So for these guys, their tradition of the elders and God's law would have points where they would contradict. It doesn't, it doesn't line up. So they have a choice to make. Do we disband this? Because what would be faithful would be to say, well, we live in our culture, here's some ideas we have, but when it contradicts with scripture, we submit to the word of the God who created the universe. That would make sense. But what they do is they say, well, the word of God can bend and our traditions 
are what rule out. So this specific example, what's going on is that uh, in, according to the tradition of the elders, you could say this thing, like this money or this food or this part of my life or this part of my house is devoted to God. It's Corbin. It's, it's, sanct- it's, it's holy. It's set aside to God. And that would mean that you couldn't use it for other things. And so this is actually a loophole that ancient Jews had found because they were expected to take care of their parents in their old age. They would provide for them, make sure that, you know, their last few years on earth were nice and comfortable and they would take care of them. That, that makes sense. But they found this loophole. They'd say, well, if I just say my money and my food's devoted to God, if my guest room's devoted to God, then, then I don't have to deal with my parents as they're old and dying. My parents are getting older. They're not that old yet this teaching starts to make more sense to me, where I'm like, yeah, that sounds nice. I should just devote it all to God then I don't have to share with them. Um, just kidding, they're in town this week. Don't tell them I said that. But um, it'd be like this. Maybe here's a better example. If you have little children and you start saying, you know what, Saturday mornings until like noon is devoted to God, so I'm just going to sleep in, you know? That, you're supposed to take care of your kids. And so what, what these... Pharisees, teachers of the law, had done as they took the tradition of the elders and they found loopholes in ways that they could disobey God's law but satisfy this own kind of cultural, their own theology, their own law and traditions that they, I, I hope that makes sense. So Jesus takes them head on and he says, this isn't right. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. No amount of hand washing, how you do your dishes, what prayer you say when you wash your hands, that's not what's going to make you clean. It's what comes out of your heart. Then after he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? If you think Doug and I are ever harsh up here, just remember Jesus saying to his disciples, are you guys idiots? Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. Some more commentary by Mark. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. I'm going to talk about that for a second. In the Old Testament, there were laws. They couldn't eat pork, and they couldn't eat shellfish. This right here, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods I mean, the gospel is the good news, but this is like a very close second. Because at this moment, the disciples went out and ordered bacon-wrapped scallops, <laughs> chowing down on lobster, like... All joking aside, I am so stoked to be living in a bacon okay era of Christianity rather than not. Man, I love lobster. So, okay. Only eat it at my parents' house because then they pay for it. But, okay. <laughs> Jesus has declared all foods clean. Nothing that enters a person is what makes them unclean, but what comes out of your heart. And I want to highlight something in verse 19 because I think we'll have time. If we have time, we're going to kind of circle back to it a little bit. He says, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. So there's this difference between what goes into your heart and what goes into your stomach. I'm going to highlight that a little bit. And I'll quickly say, if you want to read more on this text, Matthew 15, I believe, is kind of the parallel on it. It has a bit more to it. Then Jesus kind of highlights this idea. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, and the list could go on. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That's a, that's a stark description of us that Jesus gives there. This is what comes out of your guys' hearts. That's, that's brutal. This 
text is very specific. I mean, I have not sat down in all my years working at FBC or being a Christian with people who say, hey, Ryan, I'm really struggling with knowing like, how to wash my hands the right way to kind of like make God happy and be righteous and holy. And so I want to I unpack a few, because I think it's easy for us to know that washing your hands isn't what makes you right with God. So I want to unpack a few thoughts from that. I want to quickly say, I think it's easy for us, we read these interactions Jesus has with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, or the interactions Isaiah had with his audience in Isaiah 29, and I think it's really easy for us to kind of be like, those guys are stupid. Like, how did they miss it? How did they not get it? What, like, it, it seems obvious to us, and we get, to, we get the benefit of seeing outside of the text, kind of in the, the narrator spot, and understanding how they're missing it. But I think I mean, the Pharisees are wrong. You're right if you think that. But I think there are actually some things that they're right about as well. And I would say the same for us. There's some things that we're right about, but also some things that we're wrong about. And some of those overlap with the Pharisees, and some of them are in contrast. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of it, is, it comes back down to the same foundational misunderstanding that we have as some of Jesus' opponents. And I want to lean into that a little bit. See, the Pharisees, they're over here, and they're right. They've got this idea that that someone can be defiled. And when they're talking about being defiled, they're talking about like a spiritual state. They weren't concerned about the cleanliness of their hands, but what they're saying is if, if you don't wash your hands in the ceremonial way, if you don't follow these laws, if you don't do these things, then you're spiritually unclean, you're spiritually defiled. And, and it's true that there is this thing called spiritual defilement. In fact, Scripture talks about it a lot. And Jesus just unloaded this list of things that come out of our hearts that are defiling to our spirit, to our heart. And Scripture calls this sin, and sin simply just living in ways contrary to what God created you for. God created you to bring love and compassion and grace and generosity and to reflect Him to this world, but we choose to live sinfully, and that comes out of our hearts. So the Pharisees are right about that. The thing that they're wrong about is the remedy. See, the Pharisees think they can just wash their hands or do their dishes right and deal with the sin issue that they've got. They think they can work their way out of it and they can make it happen by following the traditions of the Jewish rabbis who have gone before them. And they're very wrong. Scripture makes it abundantly clear throughout that there's one remedy to this spiritual defilement that we all struggle with. All of us struggle with sin, this sinful nature, and you will struggle with it your whole life. And there's one remedy, and that's this thing called grace. And we hear about grace a lot in our churches nowadays, we talk about it a lot, and I think we throw that word around really loosely, and grace becomes kind of this cheap event in our lives. And I want to spend the rest of our time just talking about grace, and what I want to talk about this morning is what grace does. There are two things that I want to lean into that grace does. First of all, it saves us. So we all struggle with this sin issue, and there's this remedy called grace, See, Scripture is really clear about this thing called the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about this a little bit because the Pharisees didn't get it, but I'm concerned that a lot of us nowadays don't understand what the gospel is, maybe in a different way than the Pharisees, but equally as the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, they understood sin. They understood we're spiritually unclean and we need to be made clean, like holy, righteous, and blemish-free in front of God. We need to be saved. They understood that. So they tried to wash their hands well enough. They tried to follow these rules and not eat bacon and, and, and all these things. But it just wasn't enough. It's only God's grace that forgive, can forgive us. And I want to explain the gospel to you guys very clearly and very explicitly because the Pharisees didn't understand it. 
But man, I've been astounded by how many conversations I have with Christians and people who have lived their lives in the church nowadays who seem to misunderstand what the gospel is about. And I'd invite you to just, just listen to the next two minutes. Ignore, if you need to ignore the, everything I've said and everything I'm about to say, understand these next two minutes because the, the, the gospel is the foundation that the Bible's written on. The gospel is the foundation of everything we do here. And the most important thing you could ever understand, bar none, is what the gospel is. I said two minutes. I just used one of it. So let's reset that clock. The gospel is this simple message that all of us are born into and struggle with this sin issue. We're selfish. We make choices that aren't good. We rebel against what God's created us for. We all struggle with that. We're sinful. And the gospel is that there's one remedy for that, and that is that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to offer us his grace through forgiveness. See, Scripture teaches that because of our sin, we are guilty, and the punishment for that is an eternity separated from God in this place called hell. It's brutal. That's the punishment for our sin, and there's no price we can pay other than that. But Jesus steps in in his love and compassion and pays the price for us and says, this is just a free gift. You can embrace it. So the gospel is God loves you. He created you to live for him, to be in relationship with him, but we break that through our sin. Jesus pays the price, and we have a choice. We have a choice. Can we try to keep doing it on our own? Can we be like the Pharisees and say, I, I can make this happen? Or do we humbly come before Jesus and say, I need your forgiveness? That's all. If you're here this morning and you've never encountered the gospel in a personal way, you've never surrendered your life to that, you've never come to Jesus. It's simple. We, we, you don't have to come up here and ritually wash your hands. Or, you just take a minute this morning and say, Jesus, I need you. I want to confess my sin to you, and I want your forgiveness, and he will save you, and your soul will be saved, saved for all eternity. One of the ways I think we've messed up the gospel in a similar way to the Pharisees is that I, I've heard so many people, as I talk to people who you know, want to get baptized or have gone to church for a long time, their understanding of the gospel is Jesus died and now I need to be a nice person. Jesus died so I should do good things. Jesus died so now I should read my Bible or go to church. And these, None of that. That's washing your hands. It's good stuff. I mean, be nice. I don't want you guys to hear this and go and be jerk faces to people. Like, I mean, be nice, be kind. But sometimes I think we just think we can nice and kind our way into heaven. If I do this thing, if I'm nice to this, it's not like when you die, you're going to stand face to face with Jesus and be like, hey, Jesus, I walked this many ladies across the street and I, you know, I mowed my neighbor's lawn this many times. I bought this nice of Christmas presents for Pastor Doug and Pastor Ryan every Christmas. I mean, that's a really good thing to do. But Jesus is, take that list, rip it up and say, but have you accepted my free gift of grace? I don't care what you've done. It, nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sin. If you're here and you've misunderstood the gospel, I'd invite you as well this morning. Take a minute with Jesus. Come talk to one of us. Talk to someone in here and say, Jesus, that's the gospel I want to buy into because that that, that's, that, that's this whole book right here. That's it. One of the problems, though, I believe is some of us, we get that, but then we, we kind of leave it there. I, I think a lot of times we, we, we operate in extremes because we see people who believe things this happens in politics and culture, theology, churches. We see people who believe or act a certain way, and we don't like it. So what do we do? We bounce to an opposite extreme. Like we, don't want to, we don't want to be like them, so we hop to an opposite extreme. We've all done this. It's not a healthy approach to life because what you do, it's like saying, I hate those conformists, so I want to be anti-conformist, but you've just built your life around the same 
like things that they've built their lives around. Just in an, it just is in an oppositional way. We say, I don't want to be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees are trying to act their way into heaven. So we, so we go as far over here as we can. We say, I, I am saved by grace and nothing else. And that's true. But so often we miss out on what the Pharisees were actually right about. See, we sang the song earlier, Your Glory. And I don't know where your minds are at when we're singing. And I hope that you're actually engaging with what you're singing. But this, this song, it says, your glory is so beautiful. And it goes on to say, you've made this sinner holy. Holy. That, that means separated from sin. That means taken away from sin. Not just forgiven, but God is moving you away from that. And when he saves you through his grace, that's what happens. He views you as holy. You're no longer punished. You're no longer accused of that. But we often leave it there. And the second thing I think we need to understand about grace is that it changes us. I think as the North American church in 21st century, we have lost so much perspective on the pursuit of holiness and righteousness. I mean, the Pharisees had messed up theology, but at least they understood the importance of trying to live a life that was holy and righteous and continue to grow in that. For us, we hop over here. We're, like, we're not like the Pharisees. We're just saved by grace. Like I, just live, I got saved, I lived my life, and now God's grace just forgives us. And that's true in a way, but it's such an unfortunate approach to grace. We take biblical concepts and we twist them to fit that kind of a worldview. It sound like anybody we just read about? So this text, I've often heard people say, well, it's not what enters a person that defiles them, it's what comes out of them. So it doesn't matter what I watch or what I listen to or what I think about, where I spend my money, what I engage with, what, I, what matters is that I'm nice and that I believe in Jesus and his grace will just continue to forgive me and clean up the mess after me. That doesn't make any sense. We say we should be like the world, or we should be, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And so we just live our lives like everyone else, except that we've got this idea that Jesus saved us some, at some point in the past. And that doesn't make any sense, because if you're over here, and you are a broken sinner who is spiritually defiled, and you're on a course to be punished forever, and God's grace comes in and forgives you, and now he calls you to follow him, who are you following? You're following this holy and perfect and completely righteous God who has nothing to do with sin. And he walks and he says, follow me. Come after me. And I mean, if you're taking steps towards a holy and perfect and righteous God, that has to change you. The Bible calls it sanctification. So often we treat the gospel and the grace as something that happened at some point in our lives. You know, when I was young at Bible camp, I prayed this prayer, so grace saved me, and now I just kind of live my life, and Jesus continues to forgive me. Or, you know, grace happened over here. This one Sunday, I prayed this prayer, and, and Jesus saved me. So now, grace isn't an event. It's a lifestyle. If you can take a bottom line home this morning, it's that grace isn't an event. It's a lifestyle. So often, we cheapen grace to some kind of one-night stand that happened in our past, this event that happened back there and doesn't have anything to do with what we know. When you're following Jesus, he is taking steps of grace, and he offers you freedom from sin. He doesn't just forgive you of your sins, but he offers you freedom. So what I'm suggesting this morning is that if, as followers of Jesus, we should have a healthy understanding of holiness and righteousness and want to follow a perfect and righteous God. Not that we won't struggle, not that we won't mess, I mess up all the times, but God can work in you to change you and to transform you into someone who grows in holiness and perfection. If we're called to think out and to reflect the image of God to the world around us, how can we reflect a perfectly holy and righteous God if we say, yeah, I got saved, so I'm just going to continue to mess around in the sin that I've always messed around in? Scripture's clear about that. 
Paul says in Romans 6, you know, what, what do we say? Just because grace is there, we should just keep on sinning so grace can increase? Paul says, by no means. That's such an abuse to the gift that Jesus gave us on the cross. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 says that if we get saved and we just continue to live our lives like normal, we continue in on, on in our sin, we just continue living our sinful lives just depending on God's grace and forgiveness. The author of Hebrews says that we are trampling the gift of Jesus' blood under our feet and there is no sacrifice left for that kind of sin. When we talk about righteousness and holiness, man, people... I often hear people say, well, you know, I don't want to be legalistic and I don't want to be holier than thou. Yeah, don't be that. It doesn't mean you need to just live your life like you did before you, Jesus. Live for your own desires. Live, it, it is a thing of surrender. Grace should change you. J, grace should refine you. Grace should pull you into the holiness and righteousness that God offers. If you're saved by grace, why would we continue to want to live in our sins when we can live a life of grace. I'm not suggesting that you're going to go out from here and be perfect. And I don't want you to feel condemned because you've, you're still struggling with stuff. That's all of us. That'll be until the day you die. But what I'm suggesting is that you can actually grow and allow Jesus' grace to come alive within you. We sang this song earlier, Lord, I need you. And it says, holiness is Christ in me. If Christ really lives in you and reigns in you and his grace is alive within you, do we really continue to just live our lives however we want and just point back to that night at Bible camp or that experience where it's like, yeah, grace is back there and man, it becomes your life. We should be a people of grace by the way that we live our lives. We should look different than this world. Ah, but Ryan, people don't live like that. You're right. But Ryan, we'd look weird in the world. You are so right. You want to, know, you want to talk about someone who looks weird? Oh, we come here every Sunday morning and talk about him. It's okay. I'm talking very in general, and I want to, I've been kind of wrestling this week because I like to provide specific examples so it can kind of make it a little bit more concrete than abstract. And I've been struggling with the, finding the right idea because we live in a world that's kind of, subjective in our thought a lot. And so I'm going to give you guys a real life example from someone I know and an interaction I've had. Um, and even if you, you some, the thing I struggle with, I think is some of you might disagree with me on this story, but even if you do hear my heart behind it and hopefully you can apply it to something specific in your life. But this is how I think this looks. So we have a student who graduated from our youth group here and he moved away to go to a Bible college. And at this Bible college, they have um, coin-operated laundry machines, which surprised me because I, I thought college students just did laundry at Christmas and summer when they came home. But they've got these coin-operated uh, laundry machines. And uh, the washing machines cost $2.25. You put in two loonies in a quarter, and you, you push the, you know, that thing, and then you do your laundry. What the students at the school have discovered is that one of the three washing machines, if you just put three quarters in, still works, tricks the machine. So you save a buck fifty, which is pretty huge for a college student. That's a few packs of ramen. So uh, the students are stoked about this, and so they're using this. And this guy, you know, he graduated, went there, and he found out about that. He said, "Great, I can save a buck fifty the you know each when I do laundry once per semester." And so he started using that washing machine. And after a while, he talked to me about this. He said, "You know, I was using that, but then I realized, you know, just because I found like kind of a loophole or something was broken or wasn't working, he said I started to get convicted and feel challenged that, you know." 
if Jesus was doing laundry here, would he really say, sweet, I can save the buck 50 and rip off the laundry people? Or would he just say, the, the moral high road would be to just pay the price that's asked? And I realize this isn't a big deal. This is a buck 50, right? It's not a big deal. And, and I loved it because we had this conversation where I said, you know what? Your integrity really isn't worth a buck 50. You know, to, to take the moral high road, to be as honest as you can, you can never trade that in for a dollar fifty. So he felt convicted and challenged by that, so he started paying the full amount. And he shared that with some of his fellow students at Bible college, people training to be pastors and stuff. And all of them were just like, you know what, dude, <laughs> who cares? It's not a big deal. It's just a buck fifty. And and they're kind of right. But I have to really wonder, is that really the type of righteous and holy life, and I'm not like condemning all those people that go to that Bible college, just so I'm not using names, but um, you know, is that really what Jesus calls us to, or does he call us to take little decisions here and there and say, how can I grow? How can I let great, it's not a thing of works, but this is the gospel working in us every day. Say, how can I rise above the norms of my culture? How can I not subscribe to a cultural Christianity where everyone else is doing this? This is the common denominator. How can I rise above that? See, it's an interesting story because I think for most of us, we'd say, yeah, it's a buck fifty. Why is this even getting like airplay on stage? Imagine if I told you this, not a true story. I'm just going to qualify that there. Imagine if I told you there's someone in our church I was talking to said, Ryan, good news. I found a loophole in the Canadian tax system and I was able to like actually commit fraud and tax evasion this last year. I saved $8,000 in taxes. We'd all be jealous. Um, but I think we, most of us would agree like, wow, that's, that's, that's wrong. You stole $8,000. I mean, I realize I'm in Western Canada, so probably a lot of people would be like, well, good, they're taking too much from us anyways. But I think we could agree that that's not right. It's probably not how Jesus would do his taxes. And I think for a lot of us, we would think of that as a bigger deal. But it's interesting, because if I was the God who created the universe, and I was talking to someone, and they said, yeah, you know, I traded in my integrity for money, I said, well, how much did you get? And they said, eight grand or a buck fifty. I'd probably be more impressed by the eight thousand dollars. I'm like, if you're gonna trade in your integrity, you might as well cash in. The principle I think is the same. It's just the price tag that's different in both. I'm gonna highlight that by an, an analogy that uh, maybe you've heard this before. It's kind of an older analogy. It's not a true story, but this this rich businessman gets on an airplane, he sits down, he sits down beside this beautiful young woman. He starts talking to her a little bit, and partway through the flight, he has this idea. And he says to the woman sitting beside him, he says, um, you know, I, I've been thinking, um, I have a long layover when we land. If I got a hotel room, and if I gave you $1 million, would you come to the hotel room and have sex with me? The woman's pretty taken aback because she's like, no one's ever, like, I'm just a lady on an airplane. No one's propositioned me like that before. But she thinks about it. She's like, man, a million bucks? Like, all my student loans gone? Pay off my car? Buy a house? This is like, this has changed my life for whatever an hour. So she says, you know what? I, I've never, like, that's crazy, but yeah, I'll do it. So the flight continues on, and a little while later, the man's thinking to himself, and so he turns to the girl and says, hey, you know, I've been thinking about our deal, and I've just kind of been revisiting it a bit, and she's like, okay, well, what's up? And he says, well, like, I, the hotel room sounds good, the whole having sex thing, that sounds good, we'll keep those in place, but I was thinking, instead of giving you a million dollars, I'd like to offer you $20. And the woman, like, appalled, looks at him, she's like, what do you think I am? And the man says, well, we've already established that. Now we're just haggling on price. 
and I think it's really interesting because there are so many things that we've developed as a culture in our churches, things that this is a big sin and this isn't a big sin. This, following Jesus and letting grace come alive in your life is choosing to not be someone who will sell out your morals and your righteousness for any dollar amount, for any amount of pleasure, or for any amount of relation. Maybe it makes your job easier to choose a moral low road, but that is not what following Jesus looks like. We don't want to be like the Pharisees, but we don't want to bounce over here and be people who trample on and abuse God's grace. This has nothing to do with legalism or a holier-than-thou or a works-based salvation. This is this is surrendering to the grace that God brings alive in us. I'll give you one more example and then we'll wrap up. So often when uh, young people come to me and they say, hey, Ryan, we've started dating, uh, I say break up, but um, when that doesn't work, uh, they say, you know, wh- where do we draw the line, like physically? You know, what, what's, like, what's kind of like the maximum? Like what are Christians allowed to do and, and not allowed to do? And, um, and, and before I say my story, hear me out. Setting boundaries, key. If you guys start dating people, set boundaries. But, uh, you know, usually the question is, how far are we allowed to go before it's problematic? How far are we allowed to go in this day and age that you as our pastor would sign off on and say, this is okay? And usually my response is, why are you asking what's too far to go rather than just saying, God, how can we daily honor you with the ways that we interact on a physical level, an emotional level, how, how we spend our time. And I think that that's what we miss, is we miss out on daily asking Jesus, Jesus, with my job, with my integrity, with, how, with what I watch, what I listen to. I, I, Jesus says it's about what's good. His, his teaching is about what goes into your stomach. What goes into your heart is important. The scripture teaches us to guard our hearts, to be vigilant about pursuing righteousness and holiness to think about things that are true and noble and right. With what I watch and listen to and how I spend my money, how I spend my time, how I interact with my family and others, Jesus, today, how can I honor you? And that's what I would beg of you to, to ask yourself this week and as you continue on in life. To not view grace as an event, but to view it as a lifestyle that every day gives you the opportunity to say, Jesus, how can I walk away from sin? How can I walk towards righteousness and holiness and honor you with my life, my body, my mind, my money, my everything? To love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I hope that you guys can go home and ask yourselves that. I mean, what an example of God's grace and God's holiness we would be to our world if that's the guiding question we asked ourselves as we made decisions. Why don't you guys stand up? We're going to sing, but I want to pray for you guys first. We're going to sing this song um, about letting Jesus consume us from the inside out, to take control of our lives and to direct us and to help us live lives of grace. Why don't you pray with me? God, you are so holy and so perfect and so righteous, and we deserve nothing Yet you offer us grace and give us opportunity to follow you and to participate in your grace and to be saved and to be changed through your amazing act of love and compassion on the cross. Please be a, help us be a church that lives out the gospel and lives out grace as we continue to pursue you and follow you. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen.